Anyway, welcome today. That's already turned into Sunday fun day. Me trying to figure out what I have open and what I don't have open. That was kind of scary. Welcome, everybody. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour or so. We're reading a really great book today. The Adam Maria, Adam Maria Manalo's The Way Through the Woods. So far, it's been a very interesting read, and uh, I hope you enjoy it, too. Um, the, I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 35 strong up and down the state. We're giving people some time to come on a couple more minutes. That's why I'm blah, blah. And we also have branches in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. Welcome to the show. This is our this is our start of our week. We uh, we are Sunday through Thursday for our show. I'm also going to be guesting on someone's show on Tuesday during the day, like at one o'clock or three o'clock. I haven't got the details yet, but she was a guest on our show, so I could go on her show. So I'll be doing that. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming. I want to thank everybody for continuing to come and watch the, and, and watch these shows. You know, especially the Sunday show when I'm reading. Now again. Um, I can't deal with the, I won't be dealing with the chat room because I have to, because this is a PDF, so I'm reading it on, on, on the laptop screen as I'm broadcasting. So once I bring it up, I cannot see StreamYard, I cannot see, you know, the, the, the uh, chat screen. So uh, just bear that in mind. You guys can chat away, though. I'll see the messages after the fact. We're going to try, we're going to read at least an hour, maybe a little longer today. It's kind of weird because we're on daylight savings time down here in California, and you might see a little light kind of leaking through because I haven't totally sealed everything off again, you know, for the season yet. But other than that, one more minute and we will get into this book. We're in chapter 22 and uh, it's, 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 it's just, it's a great book. That's all I can say about it. It's a great read. Now I don't speak German, so I may get tongue tied at times when I'm reading. That's just par for the course. I try, I try the best I can. And sometimes there's words that tongue tie me as I'm reading anyway. So, okay. All right. Well, let's get going here without further ado. There we go. So I'll be leaning forward occasionally too, because um, to be honest, my studio is in a closet. <laughs> and uh, there's like a step area to step up into the closet. And so my chair can only go so far. So I have to lean forward sometimes. So if I get in your face to change the pages, I apologize. Okay, chapter 22. Krista awakens, to, Krista awakens to the distinct tone of feminine singing. She sits up and looks to her left. Outside the open window, night. A breeze billows the curtains. A scent, a scent of honeysuckle fills the air. She isn't sure what awakened her, but she feels her skin prickle. Then a faint girl's voice, singing. Whatever it is, it's in German. A tune she isn't familiar with. Standing, she steps with naked feet onto the wooden floor, clean and gleaming with polish. She walks tentatively to the window and looks out. All is peaceful and silent. Whoever it is, the singing suddenly stops. In the corner of her eye, she thinks she sees the shadow of a dark-haired girl in a nightgown similar to hers. The figure is standing by the open French doors, which lead out to the balcony facing the front of the house over the driveway. It looks for a minute as if it's headed for the balcony. She looks down and realizes she is wearing the same nightgown. Krista touches the nightclothes, sensing it belonging to someone else. She then realizes in her haste to get to bed, and in the stress of the first day at the house, she meant to put she meant to put on her own nightgown or nightdress and instead picked up this nightgown instead. Yes, it isn't hers. It is someone else's. And now she senses from the vision that it doesn't belong to her. 
quickly, still filled with unease. Krista pulls the nightgown over her head, clutching at her naked shoulders as she approaches the dresser in search of her old nightdress. Opening the top dresser, she rummages, and then she hears the singing again. Quickly now, she finds it, pulls it on, and turns to head for the door of the room. Behind Krista, the breeze, blow, the breeze blows in from the balcony through the open French doors. Behind the doors, a distinct feminine face of a child of twelve like Krista, but with dark brown hair. Then it vanishes. Mama! Mama! Krista timidly knocks at the door to her parents' bedroom, embarrassed. She is twelve, going on thirteen. Inside, she hears a rustle of sheets, feet on the hardwood floor. The door opens. It's her father, his hair standing on end, eyes sleepy, and taking in her expression. He opens the door to let her in without a word. Agatha sits up, arms wide in welcome. Come. Krista rushes to her parents' bed, a large wrought iron affair with tall, filigree glass. Agatha makes room without a word, putting an arm around her daughter, sensing her unease as the girl snuggles. There was some girl in my room, Mama. Horse chuckles. Nightmares bring us together. Agatha qualifies with apprehension. A believer in ghosts. I had the dream, too. There was a woman by the dresser, combing her hair. It was just a dream, Agatha. Horse qualifies. Krista looks back at her father. I was awake. It was a girl wearing a nightgown that I had taken from the dresser. I took the gown off. Agatha sits up, looking down at her husband. Let's get rid of their clothing. It isn't right to be here in their home in the first place. Horse pulls himself up, now sensing the unease from both. We have to appear gracious towards the Nazis, but I think it's safe to just put their clothes away in the attic, just in case the owners come back. Horse, dear, that was blood I saw on the iron bed. Krista looks back like she's been shot. Blood? Now you did it, Agatha. We talked about not letting her know. Know what, Papa? Agatha steps out of the bed, sitting on an easy chair nearby. It's time to disclose what she saw that was hastily wiped off by the butler. Horace reaches over, hugging his daughter. Your mama and I were talking through with the butler and one of the soldiers who escorted us here. Your mom saw what she thought was blood at the foot of the bed. The railing. He points with his mouth. Christy gets up, moves over to the footboard, and examines the railing. It's been wiped off, honey. The butler cleaned it. It might have been someone who accidentally scratched themselves. Horst. Let's not make what might be a simple explanation more complicated. But Horst, why are all the carpets new? Horst gives his wife a look. You're reading too many novels and listening to these radio shows, those radio shows. Not if you knew what's happening in Poland. Krista senses the tension. I can't sleep. Agatha gets up, putting on her robe. I'm going to start unpacking some boxes and getting breakfast ready. I don't want to rely on a housekeeper. Horse glan glances at the clock on the night table near him. Krista, go help your mom unpack, as you're awake anyway. Then prepare for school. Let's not let one night make our day difficult. Krista looks at the clock near her father, 4.44 in the morning. She feels her father's hand on her head, comforting. Let's make the best of it. You tell me anything else you see or sense, okay? Downstairs, Krista hears the back door being unlocked. The butler has arrived. 23. Neighbor's dog, sorry. Krista walks the new route to school, joining a few of her classmates in the same youth corps uniform of the spring. Khaki shorts, a white blouse, and vest, 
and a short khaki necktie that has a pin of the Nazi, of the Nazi swastika in red. Now living in an upscale neighborhood, she recognizes where some of her more entitled classmates live, now that they are neighbors. They are all turning 13. Some are already, and some are flirting with boys who live in the same area. Most of this neighborhood are children of colonels, lieutenants, generals, and the like. Long titles in German. she just as soon forget about that. She is going to be civil, friendly even, to keep up the pretext for her parents' sake. She hates being German because of the Nazis. Her father told her in no uncertain terms that she is not to express her political views anywhere outside the house, or even around the washerwoman, housekeeper, and the silent butler. The washerwoman, prim and steadfast. The woman is subservient to Agatha, but she hardly speaks at times, excuse a vibe, a vibe bordering on disdain. Was she there when the Jewish family lived there, or was she recently placed there only to spy on them? Krista realizes she can hardly recall her name. It could be fake. Like the fake smile she receives from some of her classmates, who now march in front of her as they near the school building's grayish facade. Boring and creative, almost like a mausoleum. She walks up the steps, carrying her books, two of which are for the youth group later in the afternoon. This time, she decides she is taking them on a trip to a local museum of artifacts and then sitting under the trees by the museum courtyard. No one will hear her telling her funny stories harvested from years with people who lived in a, who lived as a simple community on the other side of Blickenbach. Her real home with real people who loved to laugh and share jokes. Krista thinks of her mother as she enters the and dutifully raises her right hand in salute to the headmistress, a woman without com without comment nor power, in an age of corruption. And in an age of corruption, chronism. Mama, what is her day like on this Monday in this new neighborhood? Perhaps easier, as the butler and housekeeper are there for her. Agatha walks sw swiftly in the early morning turning to glance back at the fading figure of her daughter as the girl briskly walks to school. She decided she, would, she, decided she, she wouldn't divulge her, to her family that she is walking to the market square today to see what she can find out. Agatha is very troubled by, by, by Mila's situation and feels obligated to Emma Beckman, her friend. She had to convince herself that there is no trouble checking in on the situation and paying a visit to an old friend. She misses her. She could confide in Emma and feels a passive resistance and a distancing from the new neighbors despite her newness. Horse told her to give them a chance despite the political differences and the stark differences in values. Whereas the Schneiders value a simple and humble lifestyle, such as a simple walk in the park with an emphasis on good fresh food, the new neighbors purchased clothes from the latest Paris fashions even after ration cards were issued and they invaded Poland. This area, obvious from the house that they are in in the opulence of the gardens of the neighborhood, has a penchant for lavish lifestyle, from furnishings to art. Horse dresser and closet, the latter the size of a small child's bedroom, is filled with fancy new shirts, coats, hats, and shoes all polished. The heels have yet to touch the ground. To make matters more difficult, Krista has nothing in common with the children, and she is turning into a teen. Teens need their friends. However, she is doing her best, Agatha thinks. Why can't I, as I am her mother? Agatha turns the corner, and suddenly the open square is ahead of her. From this new vantage point, she is approaching from the quieter side, 
with the large with, with the large establishments on her right and the outdoor cafes on her left further up. A public park is immediately near her, which probably accounts for her surprise, as it is much quiet as it is a much quieter area with the alcove of trees exuding a serene and more relative atmosphere. Much quieter than her approach from the other end of the village where they used to live. Immediately, she sees a few soldiers in Gestapo uniforms sitting and mingling at a cafe, obviously having breakfast. Tendrils of cigarette smoke issue from their table, as a mild-mannered young man in his twenties busily tends to them. Agatha envies their ease despite what they are doing to the townspeople who don't fit so-called Aryan characteristics. She thinks they should at least feel guilty, but she knows that that will never happen. She walks determinedly towards the stalls of food and provisions hoping to catch someone she knows from the old neighborhood. And shortly, she does. It's none other than Emma. Emma, she hears her own voice yelling over the din of haggling sellers and customers. Emma appears bedraggled. Her frayed clothing showing is clearly in contrast to the new dress Agatha chose to wear despite her nightmare. After all, it was still wrapped and never worn, she reasoned. After boxing the rest with the help of the butler, after after boxing the rest of us held the butler. Sorry about that. Clothing is one of the few pleasures Agatha deemed herself when Horst was still a tailor, tailor's apprentice. Emma eyes her friend with a tinge of envy and pain. She is about to avoid her. However, her desire to find out what may have happened to Mila wins out. She walks over, tugs Agatha away from a nearby produce stall, and whispers, Have you talked to Horst about my daughter? Agatha shakes her head. She is there for precisely the same reason. Emma searches Agatha's face as if, as if it will betray some information to the contrary. You've got to find out, Agatha. Surely there's a way for you or Horst. Agatha shakes her head, looking at the stalls as if shopping. Let's talk privately. I was here to see if I would hear anything. Nothing. I've been here for a while now. Agatha tugs at Emma's arm, trying to move her away from the market. I think we should have come... I think we should have some coffee somewhere. What happened to Sylvia? Agatha pauses and offers. We could do nothing. She was a Jew. Emma's body stiffens. Her fist clenched around an old basket. But Mila is not a Jew. She is not like Sylvia. We can do something. You can do something. Agatha realizes too late that the walk to locate Emma was a mistake. Hastily, she strides away and makes for an obscure street in the direction of every new neighborhood. Emma follows as she glances at the street sign. I see. So this time you traded Sylvia's life so you could live among the entitled. I see how quickly we... Agatha sw swiftly turned, confronting her accuser. I didn't do... I didn't, I didn't trade anyone's life. She was shot before we could get to her. Mila was taken before I could get to her. Emma starts crying. You traitor. You gave her up without a fight. Agatha slaps her. Emma recoils in shock. Agatha whispers through clenched teeth, I took Mila in at the cost of jeopardizing my own family for several years. A soldier who had been watching across the street crosses and confronts the two women. Ziegheil. Who is betraying who? Emma starts laughing, the laughter of someone who is on the edge of hysteria. You don't want to know. A soldier pointedly looks at Emma, then, then Agatha. I believe I do, Frau. Emma stands tall. Beckman, mother of Mila Beckman. She was taken by your Gestapo. Agatha reels back, stunned in disbelief by Emma's statement. Who is this Mila, and why would we take her? Frau Beckman, 
Agatha is now beyond appalled. She attempts to rescue the situation. My friend is distraught. She is confused. She has no daughter. The soldier examines Emma, noting her dress. Then he looks at Agatha, noting her fine garment. Your domestic help, Frau? Frau Schneider. No, she's a friend. Was a friend, qualifies Emma. She let my daughter be taken. Agatha's flushed face betrays her fears. The soldier notices and holds on to both her arms on either side of him. He hands her a vi- he hands his hands are a vice-like grip as he forcibly escorts them towards the building with the SS flags. Another soldier approaches, sensing he needs assistance. The man grabs Emma's arm as she attempts to pull away. Ladies, we're taking you to headquarters. You can have your discussion there. Good. You've taken my daughter. I want her back. Emma's face is contorted in anger. The man looks back in surprise. Please, Frau Beckman, we will look into this. Emma looks up at the building, yelling her daughter's name for all to hear. Mila! 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 Chapter 24 Mila! 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 Horse shakes Agatha awake, her face sweating, her hair matted as she lies on the pillow. It is night, and they are in bed. Agatha looks relieved as she acknowledges she is safely in bed next to Horse in the new house. Please let me get you some water. Horse shuffles out of the bed, untangling himself from the sheets. The door latches shut and Agatha lies back. Above her, a reflection from the streetlight on the ceiling fades. Then a face materializes, all bloody and bruised, one eye missing. It is Mila. Agatha screams. The face disappears, running feet. A door whooshes open. Krista rushes in. She reaches for her mother. Downstairs is shuffling, then a, then a thumping up the steps. Horse returns with, with a glass of water, the water sloshing as he shakily pa- pauses over the bed. What happened? Agatha sobs. I saw Mila. She's gone. Mila's gone. Tears well in Chris's eyes. Ag- Ag- Agatha sips the glass of water and hands it back to Horst. I will tell you my dream, Krista. Before the servants awaken, I will tell, I will tell you both. In the hallway... Standing by the bedroom door, the butler listens silently. He turns, he turns on his heel and shuffles away, putting his spectacles back into his pocket. The butler walks, to the back, walks down the back stairs and into the kitchen. Briskly walks through it and out the door. He walks past the wall clock as he exits. It is 11 p.m. He stayed longer than he meant to, just in time for him to hear Frau Schneider screaming. He was marveling at how village families from the rural part of town went to bed so early at 9 p.m. The previous family didn't, didn't even eat dinner until 8 p.m. Then some music radio broadcast, and radio broadcasts were prohibited, which left the family reading books. When that family listened to the radio anyway, he just had to report it. Then, to his regret, they were taken away. Well, he thought, I was just doing my job. He steps out into the cold night, into the cold air, and starts walking home, suspicion mounting in his head with each passing block. Who is Mila? Why was Frau Schneider having a nightmare about her? It is midnight, in a, in a wood dark as pitch, except for wolves' eyes glinting in the distance. They are running quietly in packs. One howls, the howl of death. They stalk, they stalk and stop behind a, a copse of teens. In a clearing, a line of women and some children, shivering in wet clothing. They are standing with their backs to the creek. 
There is a surreal feel to the line of people. Most are disabled with crutches, legs deformed. Some are clearly manifesting some form of disability. Most of the women are murmuring in distress, some crying, some in shock. At the end of the line stands Mila, her face a mirror of terror. She is hugging her shoulders despite the humidity and keeps looking at her and keeps looking behind her at the creek. Her face is all bruised, and blood has matted her blonde hair, which hangs over her eyes. Soldiers are lined up a few feet away, facing them, boots glinting like the wolf's eyes that stand awaiting several yards uphill. From her vantage point, Mila can see both the, sol both the soldiers staring with their rifles raised and pointed at them. One, pointed at them, one at her, and the wolves watching behind the soldiers. She closes her eyes when the order is given. Guns fire. The, riv the rivulets, water, and the creek mingle with blood, racing together through the forest. The howling resumes. Excuse me, I got allergies, guys. Bear with me. 25. Horse folds a newly completed outfit. A woman's dressed in burgundy with a sailor collar. The skirt narrow, the, the skirt narrow waisted, like the fashion of the day. He dusts it with a fine brush, meant for a fine houndstooth fabric. It is a fall dress. He arranges it on a hanger and positions it near another outfit, glancing out the storefront window to check another tailored man suit. He catches Agatha walking on the opposite sidewalk across the street, past the market where she usually goes. Curious, he walks over the glass door and sees her cross towards the more rural area of the village. She is obviously headed for the rural neighborhood. He muses, concerned. He makes a mental note to ask about her trip when they sit down to dinner, wondering if the nightmare has prodded her to check, on, to check in with Emma. His intake of breath is unmistakable as he furls his brow in worry. Krista grabs her books from the school desk, almost forgetting the last two, the teacher's youth books for her pupils. The Reich propaganda from Frau Gerstestrasse. She almost lets out a chuckle that she is not going to be covering any material on, on the Reich today. She has mentally run through the stories and jokes from the old village, and in her mind's eye has a vision of the children laughing at her jokes in the garden outside the museum. That boy, the ten-year-old who delighted in watching soldiers inflict pain, is sick and out again. Roll call was heaven today, knowing he would not be there to possibly snitch on her and spoil the fun by dwelling on negative things. Maybe this is his karma, an eye for an eye, not having compassion. Krista feels a pang of guilt for wishing thoughts that are not like her. She feels a well of anger deep inside for having to put up with him and the Frau, who snatched her life from her by pushing books she was forced to use. Then they had to leave their friendly village for a handsome neighborhood that has no life but for the well-tended gardens. Krista could go on and on, reminding, ruminating on these negative thoughts, making her feel worse as her stomach responds with a gurgle. Then, as Krista exits the schoolroom to collect, to, to collect the pupils, she she has instructed to wait for her. At, I'm sorry, at, at the portico's garden path, she she spots Frau Didistrasi, all three hundred bucks and pounds of her thumping her way towards Krista. The woman looks furious, determined. Agatha clutches her basket as she weaves her way into the narrower streets towards her old neighborhood. The familiarity of the smaller homes and humble gardens, well tended by loving hands, makes her feel comforted. With every step, she feels her movements become more fluid. 
as if something is renewing her vigor. The new house drains her of energy. It feels foreboding, cold, unwelcoming. She turns into another street and sees a long lane leading to her old neighborhood at the edge of the village, leading to the farms that border the, that border the homes. By a window, a ten-year-old boy, miserable and appearing sullen, sits watching her. It is the boy from Krista's group of youth camp pupils, youth court pupils. Krista un unconsciously forgets his name, but it's Walter. The same boy with the freezing light blue eyes, whose steely look only gives into mirth and laughter when he sees pain. He is home, as Krista was told, recovering from illness. As Agatha approaches her old neighborhood, the loudspeakers watching her from above like hawks. She pales to detect the boy following her. Fading illness, the boy Walter managed to stay home. Now, idleness and boredom betray him as he slithers like a snake, stealthily hiding as Agatha pauses mid-stride to take in her old neighborhood, seeking solace with familiarity as, as the desire for friendship with old Bond. As, and, and, and the desire, sorry, I'm sorry about that, with familiarity and the desire for friendship with old Bond. In the school hallway, Krista pauses mid-step, clutching her books, seizing escape. Perhaps the woman will pass by her on a different mission. Nope. Frau Distrachasi, her, port, her portly figure heaving with the effort of her hairy mission, stops dead center in the hall. Agatha arrives and knocks on Emma Beckman's door, resolute on forgiveness and solace from the hate that, that is accumulating around her. She interprets the nightmare as a reason to resolve the apprehensions that, that appear to beg for resolution. As this Emma is waiting, the door opens, and Emma faces and Emma's face mirrors her own relief. The sun streaming from the windows along the right make Frau Dirstestrasse's blonde hair look like a halo around her evil head. It makes Krista wince, with the irony that of it as she passes a woman. I need a word with you before you go further. Krista's lips form an O. Emma stands at the threshold, hugging her friend. Agatha, unable to contain herself, begins to talk, seeking reparation. I wanted to see you. I wanted to see if by some miracle Mila had been released. Walter stands by an ancient water well, pretending to retrieve a bucket at the bottom. Just Walter, yeah, just steps from the Beckman's front door. Raul Diestrasse pulls Krista aside, away from students who are leaving, who watch and rush off to avoid the buxom woman's detection. The Frau glares, at, glares down at Krista. I need you to stay in your room and pack your things when you go home. Why? We just got here. We just got there. Emma starts to cry, already distraught. She has lost weight, has an unhealthy pallor, Agatha observes. I would only pray even more if there was hope. Has anyone seen her? No, she's probably in a labor camp. Agatha hugs her friend, whose knees have buckled in reaction. Emma holds on to her as Agatha attempts to usher her inside the house. You stupid girl. You will be living with me. Crystal looks back, eyes astonished. No, I will not. Mr. Strassi slaps her. Emma, distraught, gives in to her agony as they stand at the front door. She's gone. We tried, Agatha. She's disabled, and too many people know. Walter's eyes become as round as saucers. He bucks away. I'm sorry, he backs away, dropping the bucket full of water. Agatha hears the bucket fall and splash. She turns in time to see the figure of a boy running down the lane. Emma looks on in surprise, following Agatha's gaze. Agatha looks back at her friend in consternation. Go inside, quick. 
Stay in your room and pack until you're told otherwise. Why do I have to live with you? The Frau appears as if she has been slapped. Your mother and her friend have conspired to keep an Aryan. With that, the Frau pushes a frayed black and white photo into her hand. It's a picture of Mila and Kristen taken inside the rental home on the morning of Kristen's birthday party. Mila's bangs disguise part of her eyes, but it's clear she has Down syndrome. Twenty-six. Excuse me a second. Bane st- stand out and, and bridge to fear her raider's face, pulsing. He is furious. Horse sweats profusely as he watches Bear pace the shop, his boots thumping against the fine wood floor. The man pauses at eye level with Horst, who is forced to look away. The vehemence burns through him. Your wife, Herr Schneider, has been conspiring to hide a mongoloid child. For several years, I might add. Horst is speechless. You have nothing to say? You knew. You, bo- you, you boldly lied about the child. The mongoloid? Sir, I, I had no doubt. The commandant yells back. You knew. As the Beckmans were your friends. You knew you were lying to the Reich. Horst is trembling, clutching with sweaty hands a shirt meant for the Brigdefuhrer. The fabric is now wrinkled. The man snatches the shirt from more sands and issues an order. You are being moved to the army installation of our choice, Herr Schneider. There you will make uniforms day and night of the same quality as before. What about my daughter? She's being taken to Frau Distrasse's home, away from you and your influence. She is already becoming a good Aryan without you. Please, please. As for your wife, she is going on the next train to Dauchau with her best friend, Frau Beckman. Horst feels something hot travel down his pants. The commandant looks down and discover a tendril of urine traveling towards his boots. The man hits Horst. Horst falls to the ground, sitting in a pool of blood. Or I'm sorry, sorry, sitting in a pool of liquid. That is his urine. Don't you dare find out where Frau Distratrosi lives. You will not be allowed to even know where you are. 27. Allergy season. Krista packs two large suitcases, the butler allowing her to take some of the new unused clothing from the previous owner's family. Her hands shake, her head swims, as she distractedly looks at the butler and housekeeper, who both pull out clothing from each drawer. Krista goes through the previous week's events, trying to recall how the soldiers got a hold of the photograph in the rental house. They must have searched for it, but why? Did Mrs. Beckman indiscreetly discuss Mila? without regard for her mother's safety after they departed? Did she feel so betrayed by Agatha that she gave up her own friend to bargain for Mila's return? Krista's head spins with a million theories and questions, but she is so distraught that she keeps packing and unpacking the same suitcase. Finally, the housekeeper, a lilth young woman in her 30s who appears kind and quiet, intervenes and tells her to sit as she packs for her. Krista is grateful as she feels her heart throb in pain and anxiety for her parents. She wonders about her father. Has he been arrested? What will happen to his shop? Only one person may know. The washerwoman or the Brigdefier himself. She will try the washerwoman, then, as much as she dreads it, the commandant himself. If Frau Giesterstrasse allows it. Frau Giesterstrasse is in a white Audi. She is behind the wheel, which is new to Krista. In her lifetime so far, Krista had yet to see the woman driving a car. 
Christie emerges from the side door leading to the kitchen with the young housekeeper carrying the basket, a basket of bread. The butler emerges with Christie's luggage, all bound in leather, a testament to the previous owner, who outfitted the house. The guard, who offered the house to garden furnishings, let alone their clothing, and with great care, with great care and panache. Krista feels exhausted, grieving and sick to her stomach. She has lost Mila, now her own mother and possibly her father as well. Now she is losing a beautiful house and its ghosts, whose secrets will never have a chance to be revealed. She recalls in her mind's eye the young girl whose nightdress she wore. How Krista longs to be reunited with her parents again. How she misses the rental house with the funny and high-spirited landlady sisters, Irma and Sylvia, now dead because of who they were. She looks at the house, the house's handsome facade from the side, bidding another farewell of the short stay, which leaves her haunted by their ghosts and hoping, hoping, longing, and wishing that her parents and Mila would be restored to her. To live in this house, this beautiful house, with its painful secrets. No. Krista decides she doesn't want a house that right that rightfully doesn't belong to her and her parents. They, like her family, were torn asunder and made to suffer for being in the right, for not knowing how evil Germany has become under the Reich. The Frau gestures from the car, her brows knitted, her hands pointing to the seat next to her. She obviously means Krista. The housekeeper, to Krista's surprise, quickly hugs her, a stranger, with a kind face. The young woman hands her a basket of fresh rolls and pastries, still warm and inviting. The butler has her possessions in the large boot of, boot of the car and has slammed it shut for the benefit of Krista. Like a signal, it is to her to depart forever, the only village she has ever known. Tearfully, Krista descends the few steps with the basket, the butler opening the door with a cold but fearful look, as if he will find an answer in the distance where his eyes stray. She wants so much to run run back to the house, and lie in her parents' bed, where the sheets are probably still warm from the night before. As she sits next to the buxom woman, Crystal looks back at the slim housekeeper, who gives a wave of sadness for defeat. The butler stands at attention, dutifully awaiting the car to roll away to Crystal's next home. Crystal looks out the window, clutching the basket of rolls, her stomach gurgling. She closes her eyes, willing herself to sit back and let and let Cicero's to the end of the engine lulled her to sleep. However, it's not to be. Krista's eyes fly open as she hears the voice of a young girl, the same girl from the night before. Krista glances, glances at the Frau, who appears concentrated on her driving as they putter past the neighborhood replete with birch and elves. She hears the feminine voice say, look, in her mind, as she looks at the rearview mirror. Reflected from the back seat is a face that looks familiar to Krista. The frilly collar, the small shoulders, she wore that nightgown just the night before, unwittingly not knowing its owner would object. Now she's here, with her, in the handsome car. Krista shuts her eyes and looks again. The girl is definitely there, silent, signaling as if willing herself to communicate a need, a message. Krista keeps staring, then realizes she must keep track of where they're going. A renewed energy fills Krista. In the back seat, Krista sees the girl smile, then nod against it. The nod, the, the nod almost, <laughs> sorry there, I'm ahead of myself. Ah, the nod, and the nod, almost interceptedly, yes. I get ahead of myself, guys, you gotta bear with me, I'm looking ahead when I'm reading. Horse looks down at his trembling hands, dry and scratched. 
He has just finished another button-down shirt and is now hemming a pair of pants, which were tossed carelessly his way by a lieutenant of the current division that is visiting. No, please, thank you, or will you? Unlike in his shop, where they curry favor from him as a respected tailor. Now it is just a simple toss, as if he were a lowly servant. Unlike the handsome furnishings and decor of his shop, the room he finds himself in is not in any way handsome. It is run, his run-down cabin made of rough wood. One dirty window facing out into the barracks courtyard, hastily cemented with a Nazi, hastily cemented with a Nazi flag in the middle. The next room holds a toilet, shower, and an iron utility bed with a thin mothy mattress. A small window is above a, a small dresser where horse keeps his personal effects. Several yards from the window, sheep and some cows can be seen. Horse reminds himself this is not a prison and gives him comfort, and gives him comfort others in his exile would not have. The installation house, houses the mechanics, the tanks they service, and the gunnery, which has its own complement of rowdy men who make sure the ammunition and rifles are ready. Thrust into this are two cooks who boil everything they cook, and him, the only tailor. Horse reaches for the long bomb and a great, for, for the bag bomb and a gray tin. It is his latest acquisition from the farm, stolen in the dead of the night from one of the outlying barns where he found it. It is made of lanolin from the farmer's sheep, a product the farmer calls, sells to the SS and their families. He lathers some on sparingly. The balm helps his tired hands, overused from sewing, from bleeding, and from creeping, and from and a creeping arthritis that took the flu, fluidity of movement from his hands. As horse marvels at the consistency of the balm and the soothing feel of it, he wishes he were able to find some fruit and even some potatoes. But the trees, but the stress itself almost bore him out. Horse never had to steal anything in his life until last night. He knew it wouldn't be his last trip, as he needs to familiarize himself with his surroundings to plan to search for his family. Then he knows he won't last unless he has plenty of food and water for what he is about to do. Soon after his exile to the installation, he tried befriending the farmer, an old-timer, who stuck fast to old ways and rules. He could tell the man was not going to risk his life or, or his sons by even sharing a piece of fruit when one day horse wandered onto the property to check on his surroundings, including a means of escape. The man appeared suspicious, asked a lot of questions, and short of aiming a rifle at horse, kept his smile close to his chest, or so it seemed. These days, horse is suspicious of everyone. As much as he needs them to be on his side, it appears that he is not the only one who is suspicious. Horse grapples with his loneliness. I'm going to move this over a little bit here. Okay. Let me adjust. Horse grapples with his loneliness and never-ending apprehensions about, about, the, about his family by keeping to a strict deadline. He has endless sleepless nights which creep on, which creep, which creep on him despite his exhaustion from the 10-hour days with only two meals. He feels fortunate for having his privacy, a warm bed, and two meals when he knows <clears throat> when he knows word has it from several soldiers that these that those in forced labor for the worst crimes of impurity are subjected to the daily nightmare of slow death by starvation. This afternoon, as the sun descends from its torpor and through the darkness of a foreboding cloud, horse plots. By sundown, 
after quickly eating a meal of warm boiled potatoes and horse meat. Horse spots a building, a house, actually not much larger than the cavity he was in. The cavity he, was in. he ignored it at the time as, as he made a mental note to avoid any detection by not making eye contact with any member of rank, such as the lieutenant who really tossed a shirt to him to be hemmed. This house seems to be of some importance, as the visiting soldiers of rank seem to frequent it when they are there. 11 p.m. 11 p.m. strikes, according to the clock on his small nightstand. Horace has kept his work clothes on, still with tendrils of thread clinging to them, and with resolve plops his tired feet into his only boots. He was allowed to keep a few shoes from the home's closet, which were very new. One was a pair of handsomely of handsomely stitched dress shoes, which he now has very little use for on this perilous journey. Taking in the softness of, of the Italian leather, Horse proceeds silently towards the bedroom door and then out the front, which was hidden from view by trees lining, lining one part of the courtyard. The building is a three-story affair, owing to an attic. On this night, there is a spotlight shining towards the courtyard, issuing from an alcove above the building. Horst approaches at an angle on the side, avoiding the spotlight. He trips. Horst's breath is taken out of air as he lands solidly on his chest, his face inhaling the grass. He almost curses out loud, but purses his lips as he quickly sits up and surveys the area. Silence. He hears the faint laughter of some of the mechanics at the other end of the installation where they are housed in barracks. He darts a look at the gunnery area where a solitary light from a dorm room lamp betrays a soul man reading. The man didn't even flinch. Horse scurries to the side of the building, finding, excuse me a second, finding purchase on the handle of a door that appears recessed on the side. He turns the rusty knob as he gives. He peers in, he peers in and discovers a row of a few steel office desks utilitarian swivel chairs in old leather, and a bank of filing cabinets. Surely they would be locked, but he wonders what they house. Then a cough. Horse pulls the door shut quick, gently. He surveys as he's a shirtless soldier, undoubtedly inebriated, headed for the latrine. He is part of the company that came to gather, gather a few tanks. Horse pulls himself as close as possible to the wall as the man slithers and steadily passed. Then a glimmer as the man's eyes make contact with Horst. Um, do you have a latrine in here? Horst reels back in surprise. The man is pointing a chalky finger at the door that just shut. No, sorry, it's over there. The man looks and follows Horst's finger. Grins an impish grin and chuckles. Yeah, sorry, you are right. The man strides off, strides off unsteadily, still chuckling. Horst strides towards his cabin feeling a need to use the toilet himself, for now giving up. Too many people, too many chances of being questioned. He enters, he enters, breathing and perspiring heavily, shutting the door behind him. 29. I'm going to go ahead and juice my eyes real quick. I know it's kind of gross to look at, but like I said, my allergies are really, 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 really bad this weekend. I need to get some lubrication in my eyes. Because the string keeps going blurry on me, which is why I'm having trouble. There we go. Okay. Give it a minute here. Great book. Great, great, great book.
Krista blows out her 14 candles almost in tears. The cake is beautiful and large, decorated with green buttercream frosting in the shape of a network of ivy. Nestled in the middle is one orange rose surrounded by light pink daisies. All but one of her pupils, the youngest, now 11 years old, attend her birthday party. Frau Distrastrasse, portly as ever, claps her chubby hands and doles out gold-gilded plates, while her 21-year-old son hands out gold forks and embossed napkins with the swastika embroidered on them. Krista instinctively feels in her pocket a slip of paper as she breathes in and out to calm herself to keep up the farce. She smiles for the benefit of the group and convinces them she is happy. She has, after all, won a citation for being one of the best teachers in the Nazi youth course. And that pleased the Frau immensely, who pulled her into her buxom breast, performed, oh, perfumed with nude air temps after the Nina Ricci factory was raided. Food of all kinds is passed around, cheeses from France, Spain, and even wine from Portugal. Even when I'm, I'm going to go ahead and increase this because there we go. Let me move this. Just give me a minute. I'm sorry for the interruptions. Okay. Food of all kinds is passed around. Cheese from France, Spain, and even wine from Portugal. Verde vino. She reads on the label as she drinks from a goblet with pieces of lemon and pear. For the first time, the Frau allows her to sit across from her at the head of the table. Fourteen pupils, one out on leave due to illness. Walter. Walter is now 12 and gangly. He looks at her sideways like he did the day, the day he laughed at the labor camp prisoners they saw on the trip to the forest. How he laughed when he saw one of the, one of the women fall to her death from a gunshot wound. Krista pries her mind away from the thought, keeping her plastic smile as she eats. She opens her palm under the table and looks at Mila's photograph, smiling back at her, dressed for Krista's birthday. The Frau gave her the photograph that betrayed her parents as if to rub in what led to their arrest. The cruelty of this simple act is not lost on Krista. But she got even by actually thinking the Frau for a second. The, I'm sorry. Actually by thanking the Frau allowing her to keep it. By actually thanking the Frau for allowing her to keep it. Sorry, guys. Ugh, Krista lovingly <laughs> keeps it near her. She and Mila stood side by side, con con companionably holding hands in the living area as Horst snapped a photo with a new camera. Then Christy is transported again to their old home in Blickenbach. The wisteria that crept around the front of the house and the slant of the sun on the kitchen table, replete with pink ponies arranged in a glass jar, while her mother removed pits from cherries for borscht. Christa's sunny smile earns her a resolute hug from one of her students. So then... See, now what happens is that I have it too far over because it's bouncing. Okay. Who then stands up from the table to raise a glass of sherry and thanks of their young teacher. This time, Krista's smile is genuine. Under the table, she tucks the photo into her pocket and resume, resumes eating her birthday cake. 30. Horse grabs the two loaves of bread off the bread cart. What a piece of luck. The farmer just arrived from the adjacent field. His son's in tow and two other trucks. They bring fresh vegetables, fruits, and bread the farmer's wife baked, normally depleted by the camp soldiers. But the farmer took this treasure trove to the mechanics and Horst first on this cold morning. Horst learned from one of the mechanics that his group plus the artillery personnel had made a request to reroute. Logistics. 
The farm is, after all, right next door, so to speak. The Reich is willing to please their support staff, as it means functioning tanks ready for battle and much-needed ammunition. Not one human in the group questions Horst, as the few SS men stationed there are, are away at a major meeting. One of those meetings where important updates are discussed, which means a head count of how many dead and how many civilians have been deported. Horst eagerly pockets nectarines, pears, and strawberries from the greenhouses, thinking of how he can preserve them for a walk through the forest. It is only early April, so there is still a chill in the air. He decides the strawberries won't last unless they were preserved. He eats them on the way back to his cabin, Cotton Reverie. He thinks of his daughter's birthday that month. Horst enters his rustic and humble quarters, the shop itself with one large table, two small ones by the window, which hold the sewing machines he was given to work with, and the mannequins standing at attention, all with uniforms and stages of being sewn. He was given 10-hour days with a brief lunch with the mechanics at the next mess room, where he learned how valuable they all were to the Reich. He feels fortunate to be alive as long as he is needed. Horst walks past the large table with the cloth pieces for the makings of another uniform, tattered remains of sewing tape, all sorts of patterns, and the, de and, and the detritus of a tailor shop. He has to keep working as he plans his exodus from the installation. He swiftly enters his little bedroom and shuts the door. On the bed, strewn about, are two maps he found behind one of the filing cabinets in the building. He was finally able to center, uh, he was finally able to enter on the hours of the early morning right after the SS guards left. He sits down on the chair by the dresser, pulling out all, all the fruits and bread he was able to collect, as, as thoughts run through his mind of the path he has to take to avoid detection. He, th he thinks about the file cabinets and how he left them, hoping he didn't forget to replace anything. The cabinets. One cabinet held all sorts of equipment, re re requisitions, contracts, and miscellaneous items, including the uniforms required and those that were being returned to him to mend, if not bloodied or destroyed. He hated those when they came in, as if it was a testament to the violence of war and the inhuman ways of the Nazis, who stripped their own soldiers to reuse the uniforms after death. But that cabinet and the next one didn't concern him. The one near the window did, however. Horse approached the tall cabinet, painted army green and pockmarked with years of use, and hoped he would find his own personal file. Surely there was a way to find out what or how they, they disposed of his little family. Unlike the others, this one was locked. He took out a sewing needle, then another, and began fiddling with the lock. After an hour or so, he decided he detected the red glow of approaching morning from the window above the cabinet, and again was about to give up. Then a glint caught his eye. Resting on the edge of the cabinet, almost ready to fall to the back, was a key. It was not like a door key, but a short, stubby one. He reached for it. It fit. The foraging into the cabinet practically blurred his vision, as he feared what he might find if he did find his file. Tearing up, suppressing a sob, hopelessness and despair almost overtook him. The files were a conglomeration of, person of personnel, which was what he wanted. He had to compose himself, rifling through each file. He found they were not in alphabetical order, then he realized it was by trade. He looked under the miscellaneous section, as he was the only tailor, and then finally found the, his file right in front. Schneider, Horst Heiber, Eisenach. 31. 
Krista rifles through the files for some effects, searching for a key to the study next door. She is up on the third floor of the Maison de Maitre, an unusual home in German terms, built after French architecture. After being in a simple rental college, cottage, then an upscale home built by means, she found that the Frau had been appointed a home much larger than the one she thought impressive. This house is the size of a small building. It takes Krista a while, a few weeks after the party, to glean that the Frau knows the disposition of the rest of Krista's family. Listening in rap from her obscure perch by the conservatory, which connects to the dining room, she overheard from a guest that the child mentors of the Nazi youth are squirreled away near installations. And this home is in, but in this home, it, it, oh, wow, in this home, it is in, what is it? In this home is in Buttingen. I hope I got that right. She wanders if her father, she, she, she wanders, she wonders if her father, my gosh, is in the same town, as there is an army camp nearby. She hopes beyond measure that her parents and even Mila are all still alive, but also busies herself with the elements of the day, as it is one way to survive. Kristen knows that to ask directly means a desire to, to escape the confines of the regime of home to school and her, to her pupils. Her days never vary. Though on weekends, the frog grounds her the chauffeur to shop the city in the company of one of the brown shirts who double the servants in the house. Krista feels prying eyes on her all the time, except when she is in her bedroom. Or, in this case, right after Saturday's lunches, which go on for hours in the large dining room, replete with Blanche de China, China, Blanche de Chine statues staring at guests from their perches amid China Siri. Yeah, China Siri? If I'm wrong, I'm sorry, guys. A dining room that opens onto a stone veranda and voices that echo in the conservatory. All the servants are there, either milling in the kitchen at the housekeeper's behest, or in the dining room. Two or three always tend to tend the garden, for the Frau loves her, her huge garden, always free of weeds. In the garden center, four stone paths converge to purple wisteria circling a large wooden gazebo. Christoph has earned a modicum of trust from the Frau after her after her little teaching of words, and excuses herself from the dining table, where some men of rank are partaking of a luncheon of quails and a bed of chanterelle mushrooms. Amid the culinary feasting, no one approaches her as she ascends the marble steps to her bedroom. Then the hallway, down past the quarters of the Frau's 21-year-old son, and up the steps to the Frau's bedroom on the third floor. Past the library on the right, a sitting room with a large balcony opens to the front of the house. Directly across from the sitting room is the Frau's suite, bedroom suite, which has its own bath. Krista enters the cool room, well away from the prying eyes below. Out of curiosity, she surveys the room and enters the high ceiling bathroom in the same color scheme. Everything seems to study in pale yellows and blues, then a connecting door past the dressing area of the bathroom, which is locked. Krista looks into the keyhole and surmises from the age of the mansion that it will be a large key. Based on the age of their village home, it will be rusted, large and easy to spot. Then she hears what she thinks is rustling through the door. Someone is in the room. Slowly, Krista backs away, almost hitting a large bureau in the Frau's dressing room, recessed towards the wall and hidden behind the woman's dressers. She looks at the bureau and sees that a man's personal effects are atop the dresser, shaving items, a man's comb, and a man's watch. Idly, Krista wonders if the Frau has a lover. As she knows 
The husband is away at the front lines. Who is next door? Krista pulls away from the door quietly and slowly pries open the dresser. What she sees stupefies her. Inside the bureau, men's clothing and the accoutrements of what appears to be a garter with a rubber penis attached. Then lotions and lubricants. The latter, Krista surmises, are for, for the teats of cows when they lactate. It makes her blush. There are no cows for miles. Then the bottom drawer. Krista sees a small album bound in leather. Now, avid with curiosity, she opens it. Photograph upon photograph of a nude woman, slimmer and much younger than the Frau, with dark hair, looks back at the camera. As Krista turns the pages, in several, it appears that the Frau is posed nude in the bedroom, that is much in a bedroom that is much better draped in satin and brocade than the Frau's next to the adjoining bathroom. Shocked, Krista wonders if the husband, not the Frau, has taken a lover and is now with her which accounts for his absence in the house. She flips to the next page. Krista's eyes pop out as she sees a photo of the Frau sitting on an ottoman, one hand clutching the younger woman's hand, who is seated side by side with their thighs touching. They are both nude. Suddenly it, draws, it dawns on Krista who the person may be who is hidden next door. The woman is the Frau's lover. Then, almost confirming her thoughts, she hears a book page flip near the locked door and a woman clearing her throat. 32. Horst rewraps the sausages from the, from the cook. A large piece of bread and a wedge of cheese in his messenger bag. A piece of tailor's paper with drawings of clothing and patterns of clothing has been hastily sho shoved in for good measure, and should someone ask where he is headed, a tailor on a mission to sell his designs at the next village. Hearing about the Russians, who are descending rapidly into Germany, didn't help. But his benign demeanor as a humble tailor, he hopes will gain him passage. Horst has befriended the cook and explained during lunch that he will be checking on his wife in the village. Without guards, as it is a low-profile camp for support staff of the regime, the cook didn't even flinch and gave him a few days' rations of meat and even offered the cheese wheel and jam in an entire jar to take as a present to his wife. Horst had to accept all the man's generosity, even if the jar bulged in his bag, as Horace doesn't know how long or how far he has to go to locate Krista and their means of escape. Im images of her and Agatha float in his thoughts and propel him to move faster. Any day now the soldiers assigned to the installation will return, grateful for a brief res respite from their duties as sentries, watching the ammunition and tanks, the primary but boring purpose of their job. Horst now knows Krista is alive and hopefully well as a Nazi youth teacher. The papers indicated she was rehomed with, with, with Frau Dusterstrasse to continue her career as a youth mentor for the Reich. The woman's husband was assigned behind the front as a colonel and headquartered in Munich, well away from the Frau, who heads, who heads and appoints the youth corps members. Mentors. He hopes Krista has not been indoctrinated and brainwashed as some of the mechanic's children have been. However, he knows his daughter is great at, at discerning character and hopes she did not cave in to the corruptive atmosphere. Horse measures, cuts, and tapes the clothing he is preparing for the next regiment, mindful of the time and the schedule he has. He wants to make sure the cook's story does not arouse suspicion among the soldiers should he be prodded on among, among the soldiers should he be prodded on a horse hasty, horse hasty departure. Still, he does not want to leave by day nor take a train, 
which usually has a regiment of soldiers and higher-ranking officers who might identify him. By the time a higher-ranked officer catches a lie, he hopes he would be well on his way and his path undetected. He worries about the cheese, as it is rather ripe. Mindful of the shepherd dogs who accompany the search parties of the Gestapo should it come to that. His work suggests he is meeting all the requests for clothing and uniforms on time. So he languishes in the success as he hopes it will lead further, lend further credence to his brief departure. Horse decides he will wash whatever he leaves behind prior to leaving, the, leaving to minimize the scent should a dog search ensue. His bedclothes he now covers in lime, as the soldiers do with the cadavers of the dead that they throw or shoot in ditches. Horse prays he will not see what happened to Agatha, as he knows she has been sent to a camp, which the papers did not elaborate upon. Night upon night, as Horse lay in bed, he awakens to the night terrors of his wife being subjected to what he has heard the Nazis do in experiments. Paralyzed, he watches her, helpless as he kneels, praying that it was all just that, a nightmare. With the stealth of a cat on, on, onto its nighttime prowl, Horst exits the cabin that has been his home for over a year. As he heads for the adjacent pasture, he realizes his daughter's 14th birthday has already passed. Dimly, he thinks of the depravity of war, which not only takes away life, but the, but the vicissitudes that herald loss and hardship. It makes him angry and gives him renewed vigor to trod through the field with determination in his stride, the abundant food in his bag reminding him he will not, for the moment, starve. As he strides forward, mindful of snakes and the possibility of mines, he observes tendrils of smoke several miles away, gray smoke, unlike that of firewood. It comes with a scent, he is at a loss to define. He moves on. Okay, that's it. Stop at chapter 33. We'll continue next Sunday with cha chapter 33 onward. Let me move this down here so I can see you guys. Ah, there you are. And there I am. So we'll continue with chapter 33 next Sunday, next Sunday evening, 6 p.m., same time. Tomorrow, uh, we are going to be talking about Hollywood. Yeah. Swimming pools and movie stars and all that good stuff. We're going to be talking Hollywood tomorrow. We're going to be talking haunted areas in Hollywood, ghosts, uh, haunted studios, things like that. That's going to be our show tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And uh, I want to thank everybody for coming today. Quick reminder, if you're still interested in attending that ghost hunt with us next Saturday night, we still have one ticket left. So if you want to do that, jump on, jump online at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, go to special events, and grab that ticket because it's going to go fast this week. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming. It's been a great Sunday. I've enjoyed being here. I'm sorry for a little bit of the, the funny reading I did because, like I said, my allergies are really bad, and therefore my contact lenses are moving all over the place and blurring and all that nightmare stuff. But I want to thank you guys for coming. And, uh, you know, California Haas is, you know, if you like this, share it with five people. Let people know we're doing this Sundays. If you hated it, share it with people you hate because we're trying to, like, you know, get our subscriptions and numbers up at YouTube. All right. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click the subscribe. There's that little ghost down in the right hand corner that has a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat. Click on that. We've got over 200 videos and you can check out lots of topics, lots of topics there, just like the website. All the videos are there, including the, uh, some of the shows from Blog Talk Radio are there too, because we did Blog Talk Radio for 15 years. So they're there. But please try to subscribe to YouTube. 
the other thing too is that uh, you know this uh, California Haunts is a nonprofit, and so everything you see here comes out of my pocket. So if you could find it in your heart to donate, that would be great. Like I had to buy a new set of headphones last week. You know something breaks with my equipment and I have to pay for it out of pocket. Okay, so uh, if you could help me out with that, that would be great. And you could do that at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can go to Venmo and just type in California Haunts. You can do it from there. But I would really appreciate it. The bills are going to start coming up here to pay for the internet, pay for StreamYard, and uh, you know everything to produce this show. And I love doing these Sunday reads, and I love bringing the guests in because we got great guests coming in all the time, including Anna Maria. Okay, so if you could help me out a little bit and donate, that would be great. Again, that's paypal.me at California Haunts or Venmo and then California Haunts. All right. Anyway, I'm going to say goodbye and I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, usual time. Have a good rest of your weekend.